From Sacramento, the Bishop's Radio Hour with Bob Dunning, focusing on today's issues in the context of gospel values. Now, here's Bob Dunning on Relevant Radio. That's me. Welcome to you on this beautiful day the Lord has made. Appreciate you all being with us on the Bishop's Hour. Uh, Indeed, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we are glad to welcome in Jan Scully Royce, the chairman chairwoman, excuse me, chairwoman of the Diocese of Sacramento's Independent Review Board. Uh, Jan, good day to you. Good morning, or afternoon, I guess. But yes, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And I know that the diocese and Bishop Soto especially appreciate your great work with the Independent Review Board. Uh, Jan, of course, was the uh, Sacramento County District Attorney for 20 years, uh, and thank you for all your service there as well. But not an easy job. Well, it had its challenges, but um, so many great people working in that office, they always make me look pretty good. <laughs> and and that's, a, that's an elective office. It is, yes. What what makes a person decide to run for attorney uh, for uh, a district attorney in in say Sacramento County or any other county in California? You know, I, I think probably uh, motivations and reasons vary from person to person. But I, I grew up in that office as a lawyer mm-hmm. and um, saw an opportunity that I felt like I had ideas and um, I just was pass- I was passionate about our community and advocating for victims and, and our community at large. And so I saw an opportunity to, to run and actually lead the office in some directions that I thought um, would be uh, would be well-serving the community. And I was fortunate enough to be elected uh, five, five terms. I was going to say, if you served 20 years in an elective office, uh, uh, you must have been doing something right because uh, people kept returning you to office. <laughs> Well, I was very, very blessed uh, uh, for the opportunity, and and I, I, like I said, I never lost my passion, and um, just really treasure the opportunity to have served. It seems to me that's it's a it's a really, really difficult job for anyone, uh, especially someone like yourself, and and. Uh, uh, you you've got compassion, and yet you you have that sense of justice. How do you how do you balance how do you balance that as a human being? Well, you know, I think that even our faith uh, suggests that we were guided by uh, passion. But there's always we have rules, and there's always a sense of uh, justice and accountability that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually. The ethics required of a prosecutor always dovetailed nicely into my Catholic faith. Oh, very good. And and we hear a lot um, these days about the the term restorative justice. What do, what does that mean, and how does that work? You know what? I'm I'm not sure what that means anymore. Yeah. Um, because uh, we, we seem to have got gone off oh, on a different track, so to speak. Um, on our definition of justice, uh, restorative, restorative justice used to be um, really to where we tried to make the victim whole, mm-hmm. um, but create some reconciliation between the victim and the offender, so that um, hopefully there could be positive outcomes on both sides. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult balance for sure. Well, Jen, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Uh, you're the chairwoman of the Independent Review Board here in the Diocese of Sacramento. That a big job. Uh, I won't say a thankless job, but a, but a, but a, a tough job. Uh, tell us tell us about uh, exactly what that Im- involves and how that came about. Well. Um much, I don't think it's one thankless um, or hard, if, if I can, if if I can say that, um, because there are ten members that make up the independent review board, and they're all amazing, dedicated um, members who come from a variety of backgrounds, um, 
ethically, socially. I mean, we just have such great diversity and such um, caring in terms of making sure that children are protected um, within our diocese, um, and, but that there's a fair process. And, um, and there's, there's fairness that's not um, tainted by bias or, or any other kind of agenda. The, the credibility and integrity of each member is just, I, I'm just so proud to be part of this board. And so I see my, our job for the Independent Review Board really is to be an independent consultative body to Bishop Soto. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and we all take that very seriously. And, and I view my job really as um, is making sure each member um, feels uh, comfortable in expressing their views and does express their views, um, that we're able to do that in a respectful way and, and, and have consensus whenever we can, um, and that we, the process that we engage in is, is a fair, just process. So, exactly what is, is your charge? Well, essentially, our charge is to make, um, to determination. If, um, if there's a complaint or allegation that comes in against the member of the clergy regarding child sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, our job is to determine whether that allegation or complaint is credible. Mm-hmm. And if credible, the suitability of the um, potentially offending um, cleric uh, to his suitability for ministry. And it, so that could mean whether or not um, there should be an ex- exclusion from ministry at that point, um, or something shorter about maybe a suspension or restriction in terms of. And activity, especially so far as it relates to being around children, and so and and what I should also say is that this is decisions we, we make decisions as it board, but our decisions really are recommendations to Bishop Soto. And mm-hmm. um, ultimately, the the person that's charged with making this decision, of course, um, is Bishop Soto. So, and um, but we know that he he values. Um, our recommendations. Um, we have very open dialogue with the bishop. He's not ever present when we are actually deliberating and making our decisions. Mm-hmm. But um, we communicate with him on a regular basis, as, as he does us, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very good relationship that makes us feel comfortable, that he respects and, and very much wants us to, to be in decisions. Yeah, in, in my conversations with the bishop over the years, uh, it's very clear to me that that word independent is very important to him, and, and also he wants he wants the unvarnished truth from you. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't want somebody to say something just that that uh, is uh, pleasant to hear. He wants to, he wants to hear what you people really think because of who you people are uh, in the community. Yes, he's very open to that, and, and oftentimes just a letter that I write to him in terms of our recommendations um, just doesn't quite say it all, and I'll actually meet with Bishop Soto, because these are not easy, always easy cases. In fact, most mm-hmm. of the time they are not easy cases. Um, they're nuanced, um, they're, uh, there's complexity to them, and so it's important for us that the bishop understands what our thinking was, and obviously, when I visit with him and have these discussions, we don't mention individual members, but but I make sure that he understands the differences in pers- perspective that we did have differences of opinion, um, and how we ultimately arrived at um, our, our decision. And so um, that's I think that's valuable for us to have, engage with him that way. I think it's very valuable for him. As well, we also make recommendations on with respect to policies and procedures around um, the 
protection of children mm-hmm. um, against abuse within the diocese. And so that's another way that we, we weigh in, so to speak, on behalf of, of that, that issue, which is the protection of children is very, as you know, is very, very important to Bishop Soto. And he, he works very hard to make sure that his decisions are based on protecting children, at the same time ensuring that there is fairness to, um, in the process for um, the, the cleric that is accused. So do you, do you work with Katita Shulman as well, the Safe Environment Coordinator? Um, we work with the, with the Pastoral Care Coordinator um, only insofar as um, we'll, we'll get annual reports. Um, on the other hand, um, that we, what we do get is the information, the initial report from the complaining victim often comes through the pastoral care coordinator. And so that we kind of view that as the intake position. Uh, of course, for us, we get information. The pastoral care coordinator does much more in terms of trying to assist um, that victim in any way possible. So how does how does the report of this first come in? Does uh, somebody who's a a victim, or even an alleged victim, just to use the term, um, do they contact the diocese, or do they usually contact law enforcement, and then law enforcement contacts you? How does that work? Well, there there can be a, a number of ways that it comes in. Um, coming in directly to the diocese from the victim or someone on his or her behalf um, can happen through, as I mentioned, the pastoral care coordinator. Um, It could be a a law enforcement or, for example, a child protective service um, report that gets to the diocese, and then then that, that obviously is very important. And then, as you well know, there is, um, litigation pending now against a number of yes. of uh, across the nation, but obviously more specifically within the Diocese of Sacramento. And so um, there are sometimes where um, an alleged victim will actually go to an attorney. Right. And that often makes it difficult for us to actually provides the support that really that pastoral care coordinator and and um, the bishop wants to try to be open and and, and hopefully help heal um, the alleged victim and and so when litigation comes first then that often um, takes away that opportunity yeah it seems like it would precluded in and I don't I'm not going to do any lawyer bashing at all but it, generally yeah. when it gets involved in the in the legal arena the 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 advice is uh, let's let's just keep silent or let, let's not have contact with the people you are potentially going to sue or people that you are currently suing um well, yeah. for, pur- for purposes of the IRB's responsibility mm-hmm. We actually need to have information uh, from the victim. Typically, it's directly from the alleged victim, mm-hmm. but other times um, it might be through statements the alleged victim provided to law enforcement or to some other credible um, entity um, that we have available to us. The, the bishop actually refers uh, when, a, when a complaint comes in and he becomes aware of it, actually refers this to the um, diocesan um, legal counsel, mm-hmm. who then um, has that complaint investigated. And so by the time that the, the case is presented, if you will, to the IRB, there has been um, an investigation. And so for us, what we really look to, as, as I think common sense would suggest and any reasonable person would expect, is that we have information from that alleged victim and we have, as well as from the accused offender, whether it be a priest or a deacon. And do you, do you also interview the alleged offender? 
Well, the, as part of the investigation, the um, accused um, priest or deacon is um, is always given the opportunity for to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. And I should say that that actually the both the, the alleged victim and the accused um, priest or deacon is actually also um, invited to or um, is able to personally. Uh, present to our board as well. And you, you say priest or deacon, do you also handle cases that might involve a, a, play, a lay person? No, that's handled separately. Okay. So th- these, I don't know, I guess new cases is, 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 is the right term, the, the cases that are, are now pending uh, after the statute of limitations was, I guess, extended or went back right. uh um, have you dealt with a number of those cases? We have dealt with some of those cases um, because actually those cases, um, the, the majority of those cases are old cases. Right. Um, so if they're new, some, of the, some of them may be new to, to us. If, again, if they, if they went through the legal process as opposed to coming through the the uh, diocese, then some of those may be new um, to the diocese as well as to the IRB. Um, but uh, but I, I don't know if most people really appreciate that there, if there are very few um, cases that um, where we actually have a, um, a priest or a deacon that is living. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, you know, settlements or resolution of a case, do, do you have any role in that? Does the board have any role in that? No. So you don't, you don't, you, you don't make recommendations on that in terms of uh, what's, what's the legal liability for the diocese here, um, what's likely to happen, that sort of thing? No, not, not at all, um, because really our primary purpose is um, is to make recommendations to the bishop as relates to one is the is the com- is the complaint or the allegation is it credible mm-hmm. and um, for that we have we have the lowest possible standard and that is is it more likely than not mm-hmm. that the complaint is is true or credible and. Um, the other part, as I think I mentioned, was the, su- the suitability of the priest or the deacon uh, to continue to serve in ministry. Yeah, and it's that's a real that's a it's a it's not a legal standard. It's just a standard that you folks are using um, for the protection of children. And, and again, it's 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 something that's been adopted by the. Uh, I'm probably not using the right term, the Council of Bishops mm-hmm. across the United States. Yeah, the USCCB, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we, the Independent Review Board, as you well know, and our, some of your listeners might know, is they are all across the, the uh, United States. Right. I, I like to say I'm very proud of our bishop because I think that he utilizes... Um, the IRB in, in the best and most important uh, possible way and is, is so good at um, really accepting our recommendations. But, um, but ours is really more focused on the safety of children within the diocese, those, those, that kind of determination, and, and the make, making sure that the children of the diocese are safe. Yeah, amen, amen to that. And I know the the bishop uh, just in, in his recent statements uh, since the, you know the, this has all hit in the last uh, month or so or last few months uh, have been has been focused just strictly on the victims, not on. Uh, I mean, he he is talking about what might this mean to the diocese and and how we're going to get through it and and all that sort of things. But there's no. He said that the the problem exists because of the abuse, not because of the victim seeking justice. He has been excellent in that regard, um, but I do also want to emphasize that this is a very difficult 
um, road to travel for Bishop Soto because, mm-hmm. yes, protection of children and um, and really some, a sense of, of justice for the victims um, is very highly important to him. On the other hand, um, he he cares greatly about um, the priests and the deacons within within the sure. ministry. Sure. And and um, not every allegation is is being credible. And so that's why it's just so important for us, for example, to have as much information as possible from all sides. Um, that's why it's important that there's an investigation that occurs and information presented, all that information presented to the board. Um, that's why we have a chance to say, we want you to please have the investigator check this out or that out. Um, and, and just, you know, there's, there's lots more to it, I think, than people might imagine. But it, it's, it's very hard to, um, you know, the vast majority of our priests and deacons are wonderful and dedicated and uh, do such a wonderful job and that it, it, this has been a major blight on, certainly on the Catholic Church and our, our diocese, but we have to remember all the wonderful and deacons that um, are out doing God's ministry every day. Yeah, very well said. Do you get, you must get cases too where there's not necessarily criminal activity. I mean, sometimes you hear this term boundary violations. Uh, how do you, how do you deal with those? Um, you know, uh, Give me one case, give me three cases, and every single one will be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, sometimes that, that might be a hard, a hard nut to crack, so to speak, because sometimes there can be, there has been inappropriate behavior that doesn't, if I'm, if I'm understanding your question, that just doesn't quite cross the line of sexual abuse. Right, right. Um, but... But it's, but it's not appropriate. Right. And so, um, and Bishop Soto also has, where, where that, if that's a determination that's made, then there are efforts to make to, um, for purposes of that um, priest or deacon to actually um, to be counseled, to be, um, to be educated, to... Um, even if it's appropriate to be restricted from, from interaction with children. If really every case is decided individually on its own merit and um, the proper steps of that after, after decision or after um, coming to a termination case of whether it's credible or not credible, then really that, those are things that have to be considered as are there still appropriate steps that need to be taken. And- in, uh, obviously, you're, you're you're on the review board, the independent review board. So, uh, but we hear that since the charter in Dallas, uh, twenty twenty years or so ago, uh, twenty two years ago, I guess, um, that we're not getting anywhere near the volume of cases reported. Even like you say, the the, the ones that are pending now, uh, after the statute of limitations was extended. Uh, are primarily uh, old cases. Some of them very old cases. There are some more, more recent, but we 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 also hear you know well it took so and so forty years to come forward or thirty years to come forward. We're hopeful though that the the, the lack of reporting uh, the much lower numbers now are a result of all these actions that have been put in place. Or is do you share that opinion? I think so. Um, you know, as a prosecutor for many years, I also appreciate the, that there are cases that go unreported. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt about that. And, and that's, that's whether or not it's through um, the program that the diocese has set up for victims to report and, come, and, and uh, 
come forward, whether it's in the criminal justice context, whatever that might be, um, people, children especially, um, for whatever reason, don't report. On the other hand, when you create an environment that one is open to and supportive of reporting, um, when you have set up a system as our diocese has, and I'm sure other dioceses have, where they're, they have standards, they have training, um, there are a lot of policies and, policies and procedures in place on an ongoing basis that are always kept up front and, and visible, then I do believe that the incidents um, have decreased. I don't think there's any doubt about that, and so I would agree with you on that. And there's also more, you know, um, the standards are children aren't left alone with, with mm -hmm. adults, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be priests or deacons or whatever, within the context of the Catholic Church. That's part of their policy now. So these are steps that certainly Bishop Soto and, and, and other bishops around the nation have taken to, to be uh, proactive, if you will, to, to, be, to be into prevention to try to make sure things don't happen before the fact rather than having to deal with it after the fact. Yeah, that and, makes sense. and you hope, you hope too, and it's 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 really the I guess the unanswered question in in uh, in in our cases and in in abuse out in general society is is you hope some of these things have been put in place would serve as a deterrence to a potential abuser. We I don't know if we if we know that that's true or not because uh, who's going to come forward and say yeah it actually helped me but uh um hopefully you would you would think that the lack of opportunity uh will deter the behavior i think you're 100 percent right on that also um uh, seeing consequences yes right uh, seeing what you know when again when i was a prosecutor we've always said is that um consequences and and punishments uh, weren't just for the, that particular offender, but to send a message to others right. who might be deterred because they don't want the kind of consequence that they see happening. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's it's. Uh, it, do you do you get together with other review boards? Uh, you know, in 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 the state of California, or you know, and and share. Just you know, share not share information, but share uh, methods or or best practices or the, that kind of thing. No, we we haven't done that. I've only been on the uh, board a relative short time um, in my time there, and I don't have any contrary information that occurred beforehand that individual board members would interact with other mm -hmm. uh, board members from other dioceses. Um, but I do think that a, a variety of levels, whether it's the, diet, the bishop or his representatives or the council, legal counsel to the diocese, and perhaps even some of the, the staff that, that is connected to working with the IRB, I do believe that they do exchange um, information regularly. And I, I even know the pastoral care coordinators, when, when there might be a complaint that comes in, that ends up after investigation actually um, belongs in another diocese that there's exchange and, and uh, communication even between um, the pastoral care coordinators. So there, there, is, there is communication going on, I think, relationships in place. It's just not at the individual level of IRB members. You know, as a, as a lifelong Catholic, I know I was... I was stunned uh, when when this all hit. Whenever it hit, you know, we we, we think back to Boston and and uh, all of that. But I mean, truly stunned and and really stunned by the volume of it and and hurt and ashamed and um, you know, just because it had never been my experience with with clergy and. Uh, I had a great number of priests growing up that I and deacons I greatly respected and bishops and and it really it really hit hard and yet I'm I'm very I don't know if proud's the right word but I'm very I guess proud of the way the church is now responding especially here in the diocese of Sacramento especially bishop Soto 
who just uh, he he wants to do right, but number one by the victims, but number two to ensure that just just never happens again. I mean, you can't you probably can't ever say never. It's uh, things are going to happen, but um, you can certainly dramatically reduce the incidences. And it seems as if what the church is doing here in the United States is almost a model for other organizations, and we know there are many that have had similar problems within their organization. I agree with everything you just said. Well, Jen, uh, Jen Scully-Royce, uh, I've, I've admired your career from a distance for many years, and uh, um, thanks for all you did uh, for Sacramento County, and uh, thanks for what you're doing now for the Catholic Church. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, God bless. That's uh, Jen uh, Scully Royce, who just she was a district attorney here in the di- in the <laughs> in the diocese in the county of Sacramento for uh, twenty years, which means she got reelected. She got elected five times. Uh, it's you know four year term. So uh, people uh, just had great respect for what uh, what she did. So we'll take a quick break here. Back with more on a bishop's hour right after this. This portion of the Bishop's Hour is brought to you by a grant from the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Drop by and shop at their thrift store, a beautiful, beautiful thrift store at 2275 Watt Avenue. Open Mondays through Saturdays from 10 to 8 and Sundays from 11 to 6. They also accept donations at the store, donations of furniture, appliances, clothing, books, everyday household items. Your donations help to fund the many projects of the St. Vincent de Paul Society throughout the Diocese of Sacramento. Do such wonderful, wonderful work, and the thrift store is uh, one of the the ways they uh, raise the funds to help people throughout the diocese, and also uh, many of their clients are able to access the uh, thrift store for uh, items that they need. You can uh, give them a call. They will come pick it up as well, but you can uh, give them a call. They're at 916-972-1212. And remember, again, the thrift store is open uh, seven days a week at 2275 Watt Avenue right here in Sacramento. Well, Bishop Soto refers to Christ the King Retreat Center as the jewel of the diocese, and indeed it is. What a beautiful oasis it is. It's located in Citrus Heights, uh, right in the hustle and bustle of the city, and you feel like you're getting away from it all when you uh, turn off the main road and just uh, uh, come into Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center. Christ the King has served Northern California and the Diocese of Sacramento for over 60 years through parish weekend retreats, individual spiritual direction, and a variety of other programs. For information on all the programs that they offer, including residential programs, give them a call. They're at 916-725-4720, or you can visit them at 6520 Van Maren Lane in Citrus Heights. And we certainly thank uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Society and Christ the King Passionist Retreat Center for their fine and long-standing support of the Bishop's Hour. We'd like to thank all the wonderful people and organizations, uh, businesses in town uh, and throughout the Diocese of Sacramento who have provided underwriting for the Bishop's Hour. Uh, some in the last few years, some uh, have been with us for a very long time. If you would like to be an underwriter for the Bishop's Radio Hour, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to to support this mission and also to support the diocese and also uh, to get some uh, recognition for uh, your organization or for your business. The easiest way to do this is to uh, give us a shout, send us an email, radio at scd.org, and we can give you all the details about Uh, helping to underwrite the Bishop's Radio Hour. Again, that's radio at scd.org. This is Deacon Kevin Stasko, the Director of the Office of Youth and Young Adult Ministry and Family and Faith Formation, and you're listening to the Bishop's Hour with Bob Dunning. Thank you, Deacon Kevin, for all the great work you do here in the diocese and for that wonderful uh, introduction. Well, we're pleased to welcome in our good friend, our longtime friend, Tony Ryan, the Director of Sales and Marketing for the great Ignatius Press. Uh, Tony, good day to you. Hey, Bob. Thank you. How are you? Uh, doing doing fine. Uh, it's been too long since we've spoken. I presume you're still in the great uh, city of Napa? Napa Valley, man. You, Napa. you got it. Come on down and visit. The, the, the <laughs> wine is good. The wine is good. God's country. Oh, my goodness. God is good to us. 
Yes, that's a, you know besides you know obviously being a, just a, one of the most famous wine regions in the world, uh, it's a beautiful valley. It's it is really stunningly beautiful, especially as you move into the spring. Yeah, I mean I think that you know that comes with the vineyards in some ways. I mean uh, you know they have all the variety of vineyards we have and the right. different little uh, climates and the microclimates and all that. You've got to have kind of the geography to go that would help bring that and uh, so as you say just driving around the napa valley uh, which is pretty extensive uh, the geography is pretty stunning and right now we actually i think we still have snow up in the highest Uh, hill oh i'm sure you do yeah yeah snow here for uh, which is unusual uh and i think we still have it out there we've been having hail down here on the so down here on the plateau on the (laughs) plateau yeah hail hail storms uh last few days which are kind of exciting for us uh, a lot of hail uh but up on the hills there's been quite a bit of snow did you actually get any snow in the valley no yeah no no we've got hail but no snow yeah hail's uh, <laughs> you, you can get hail in the summer sometimes though <laughs> you gotta get right. snow yeah, yeah. But it, it is uh uh it's it's amazing i can look uh uh i can take a ride in the central valley and look Look to the west and to the Sierra and see snow on both uh, ranges, and it's you know it's much, much uh, lower yeah. ranges on in the coast ranges, especially down down this way. But that's yeah, wow, well yeah. But I would I, I wouldn't I would encourage anyone to want to have a trip to see some beautiful country and maybe taste some wine. Come to Napa right now; it's so beautiful because of all the rain. Everything is blooming and busting out and, and green. And green is yeah. It's 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 the, it's it's one of the 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 great things about uh, this area is you know you get that beautiful amber color in the fall on the little foothills and and that kind of thing, and then in the spring it's just same stuff. It is just bright green. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then it gets, then it starts to turn golden. Yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the golden state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Tony, uh, I'm looking at this really thick volume yep. on Lourdes, Healing and yep. Rebirth from Ignatius Press. Did you take all these photos yourself? Yeah, I wish I did. That oh. means I would have been there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, this is, this, this, you know, Generally, I, I, you know, I read the books, and then I, uh, we have a shelf here, and we put them on the shelf, and kind of first come, first serve for people. I'm trying to hide this one. <laughs> it's like, it's, it is just gorgeous. Yeah, so it's a really, uh, it's a great combination of uh, stunning photos, as you, as you mentioned, stunning artwork, stunning photos, lots of them. It's really kind of a coffee table book, but really much more than that. So it's the photos plus all the great you know, text contributions of, uh, so what, what I think what makes this book completely unique for a book on Lourdes, there's, you know, there's various books on Lourdes and the story of Bernadette and all that, but what makes this one really completely unique in our opinion is that it has all those stunning photos throughout. I mean, it's like, if you can't go there, this is the next best thing to being there. Just read this book, but also the text. So what they did was, so it was edited by a Dominican priest named Thierry Huber, mm-hmm. who's a, become a big, um, devotee of Lourdes, uh, although at the beginning, although he wasn't initially, as he tells at the beginning of the book, he was kind of a, he was a non-Lourdes uh, devotee, and he had to be won over. And then what, was he, he an anti-Lourdes? He was kind of, uh, just thought it was, you know, too, he just, he just, it didn't appeal to him. He thought it was too uh, old-fashioned, too pietistic, whatever. He, he tells it in the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a Dominican. He thought he was too sophisticated for all this old-fashioned. Yes, right, right. But I don't know if he had ever actually gone there. I don't think he had. But then he went there, and then everything changed. So if you go to Lourdes, then you, then you, you cannot help but fall in love with the place. I mean, it's definitely, there's something, you know, of all the Marian apparitions, and they're all great, Lourdes kind of is... Um, you know, kind of special, kind of unique because of everything about it. I mean, the whole thing about Bernadette, you know, digging the hole, the water comes right. out. Now the waters have become this miraculous water that heals both body and souls and has done so for countless people. And then it's it's retained its beauty. It's got this kind of heavenly aura about it, just amazing. And then all the sick that come there. I mean, they have all these pilgrimages of sick people that come there year-round. I mean, it's just an amazing place. So anyway, the, the, the author... The priest was completely won over and started making pilgrimages there, and he's now involved with some 
he's got some media connections that he has, you know, so he's, you know, he's uh, kind of helps promote it. And, and then the, the photographer that he worked with, this Sophie DeLay, is uh, an acclaimed photographer. So you have all that in the book. But then you also have these uh, contributions by famous writers, famous journalists, famous historians, famous poets, and, and popes, including popes. You have all these this variety of great writers, and there, these are people throughout history. These are some that go back to the time of the apparition. They actually have the actual you know, written pieces that were written way back at, around the time of the apparitions all the way up to modern times. And as I say, you've got this famous people like Paul Claudel, Francois Mauriac, Emile Zola. You've got Pope Pius XII, Pope Pius XI. So you've got these contributions by all these incredible uh, writers and historians and, and so forth which really gives you a kind of a personal feel for Lourdes. And they're, and they're also great writers, so it's just it's very fascinating reading. And, and uh, that's what makes this book, I think, completely unique. And as you said, it's a beautiful book. It's large size, coffee table size. It, I mean, it's this kind of book you could, you could leave out and pick up periodically to read. You know, I, uh, I don't know if I'm right, but it's, it's my sense that, as you say, all of all the great Marian apparitions, and they're all great, um, and, and we're talking about the approved uh, apparitions. And Lourdes, I think, is probably the one that has crossed over out of Catholicism into the general public in a way that even maybe Fatima or, uh, I hate to say it because I love Our Lady Guadalupe so much, you know, but those, those don't tend to be strictly Catholic, but they're more Catholic than Lourdes uh, in terms of, I think, the general population, everybody knows about Lourdes, and not as many people maybe know about Fatima. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And again, no criticism of the other Marian apparitions. Exactly. They're all great. The shrines are all amazing. But I think, I think the reason for that, for what you said, is because Lourdes uh, it has this appeal beyond Catholicism. I think part of it is because of the, um, the miracles, the sure, water. Sure, sure. Uh, and the ongoing, I mean, you go there, and there's sick people. This doesn't happen at any other marriage. They have organized pilgrimages of sick people from around the world right. all the time. Right. It's just, it's just, it takes your, takes your breath away to go there and see the, and then they have these candlelight pilgrimages at night. I think any, um, you know, any uh, kind of uh, atheist or, you know, agnostic, they just can't help me move. And then there's the scientific part of it. So those who are big on science, well, you know, how do you explain the science? How do you explain the, the miracles? You know, right. I mean, that they're medically proven, and there's there's all the proof there if you want to look into it. So here's an example of what you're talking about: the famous book, Song of Bernadette, which was made into a famous movie. Right. Well, there, that's a perfect example. You're talking about. It was written by Franz Werfel. He he wasn't a Catholic. He was a Jew. And he was, you know, this is during World War II, so he's on the run from the Nazis trying to get to America because he was a outspoken critic of, of, of Nazism and a well-known writer. And so, of course, they put him on the hit list. So he's trying to get out of Europe and get to America, but it's hard. It's hard to do that. And so he, he came to Lourdes kind of on his travels to try to make his way to wherever he could go to get to America, and he realized that he needed to stay there for a while because he had to hide out. So he had never been to Lourdes, he, and he didn't know anything about it. So then while he's there, he starts to learn about the story of Bernadette and Lourdes, and he was so completely taken by it that he, he believed in it, first of all, and he promised Our Lady that if, you, if I get to America, I will write the story of the Song of Bernadette. And so he, did, he made it to America, and he wrote the famous book, which became a famous movie. But there's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's... You know, it, it, here in here in the Diocese of Sacramento, um, well, I think the, the it's a San Francisco group too. Uh, the, the the Knights of Malta uh, every year go and take uh, what they call malats, uh, people that are sick, uh, and I'm, they have a process for selecting who's going to go. And I think they usually go in April, maybe May, and spend a week or so. And it's and we're lucky they uh, they come back and they. Uh, come on come on the air with us and talk about it and it's just it's just miraculous just what they've done and and the journey they've taken and and uh if we're really lucky they bring us back a few vials of lord's water yeah as, as well yeah well i mean i agree so the water and everything about lord's the miraculous aspects um you know there's it's obviously there's more 
miracles of the spirit of the soul than of the right. body. And, and that's, that's what that's those what they're saying. Count the most, anyways. You know, I mean, our bodies are going to die someday, and you know, the, the goal is to be spiritually uh, renewed, and that that happens uh, all the time at Lourdes. And once in a while, they still have physical miracles. I mean, there's there's dozens of documented, or maybe more than dozens of documented uh, medical medically documented miracles right. of healing at Lourdes. There's no question about it, but. But you know, but that's not you know, not everyone's going to have a physical healing. But the spiritual healing is is what we all need. And, and you know, you go to Lourdes with an open heart, you're going to get it. Yeah, that's I. That's the story I've heard over and over again. Uh, is is that that spiritual renewal, spiritual healing? Uh, and and you're, you're right. I mean, you know, uh, forget about your body. It's hard. It's hard to sometimes, especially when you, you know, limp out of bed in the morning. But uh, it's it's the spirit that matters. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know, even Bernadette herself, you know, our lady said to her, "I cannot promise you uh, you will be happy in this life, only in the next." Which are kind of stark words. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Bernadette. Then later on, said, "Well, I mean, I don't really know what she meant by that. I'm pretty happy, you know." But then, they, and then you find out she had this incredible suffering she endured uh, that she was never healed of, even though she was the one that brought the water. Incredible suffering that she endured, but she never complained about it. Hardly anybody knew about it until towards the end of her life, when they were aghast to find out that she had these, you know, cancerous sufferings or whatever it was she had. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's you'll see that in the movie. That the one of the nuns, uh, of course, according to the movie, was uh, kind of an overknown. Was always jealous of her, didn't believe her, thought she was a fake, and all this. And she would always try to look for ways to criticize her. And then she found out towards the end of Bernadette's life, she had this incredible suffering that she never told anybody about these this cancer or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And this nun was completely, completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, changed mm-hmm. uh, on her attitude towards Bernadette. But. Um, but again, so not everyone's going to be cured physically, but the spiritual healing is what really is what Lourdes is all about. And, you know, as back to the uh, popularity of Lourdes, Fulton Sheen, the great Archbishop Fulton Sheen, mm-hmm. Lourdes was his favorite place on earth. And really? he made, I think he personally made about 30 pilgrimages there in his in his life. He just, that was where he wanted to be in Lourdes. He's got a lot of great stories in, in his biography and other things that he's written about his experiences at Lourdes. It's just there's something heavenly and unique about Lourdes that, you know, heaven kind of touches earth, as this book talks about. Some of these photos, Tony, um, look like they could have been taken in the Napa Valley. (laughs) (laughs) They they do. uh, It reminds me, it's funny because uh, uh, one of my uh, college roommates, uh, he and I uh, played some tennis tournaments in Ireland a number of years ago. And you know, took a lot of photos. And uh, Ireland is is kind of got you know little rolling hills and green and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had a few friends over, and just for fun, we we went kind of up and down the Sacramento Valley and took some photos, you know, in the spring. <laughs> and then we showed those photos, and everybody said, "Oh, Ireland, it's so pretty." <laughs> And I'm just wondering if you snuck a few Napa Valley photos in this book. <laughs> no, 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 nothing from Napa here. It's all lures. Yeah, all but lures. It, it it does ha- it does have a little bit of that beauty. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, France is France is uh, famous uh, for its beauty. Wine, yeah. wine, wine. Exactly. As well, I mean, obviously, it's much older than Napa in terms of their great, uh, you know. Uh, well, a lot, of, lines, a lot so. of those people came over to the Napa Valley. A lot of people came from yeah. from France, came from Italy, came from various places yeah. to the Napa Valley. Yeah, so. well, we've got the geography for it. I mean, you know, you got to have the you got to have the right geography for for growing the best grapes, and we just it, we just have it here. I mean, we can't take the credit. I mean, God God made it that way. Oh yeah, we just had people that have taken advantage of it. But let me before we conclude, I just want to talk get back to uh, something special about Lourdes for Americans, and that is that. Um, so, you know, the patroness of the United States of America, we're so fortunate, is the Immaculate Conception, Our Lady under the title of her Immaculate Conception. Right. What a great what a great gift that is for us to have that. Well, so we, as we know it, at Lourdes, us, you know, Bernadette, the parish priest, not many people believed her at first. And, you know, that's, that's understandable. 
Uh, and this parish priest, who is quite a character, and as you still, you'll see in the movie, uh, a guy that you really come to love, kept saying there, well, who is this lady? Because Bernadette did not say it was the Blessed Virgin, mm-hmm. because she wasn't sure. And so um, I need to know her name. You need to ask her her name. And so Bernadette said, okay. So she, she asked her name several times throughout the apparitions, and Our Lady never answered. She just smiled and kind of bowed her head every time. That's what Bernadette said, but she never answered. Hmm. So in the 16th apparition, there were 18 in total, Bernadette felt compelled once again, and course the priest kept reminding her, I'm not going to believe you until you start giving us more information, including who is she? Who does she say she is? Bernadette, and I'm going to read this from the book here, she said, um, she said, I cannot say why, but I felt bold, myself bolder to ask her once again to graciously tell me her name. This is, this is on, now this is on August 25th. This is the, I mean, excuse me, this is on uh, March, March 25th. So that's, what's important about that is that's the Feast of the Annunciation, right? So Feast of the Annunciation, 16th apparition. Bernadette, she talks to Our Lady about various things. It's very touching to hear about their conversation, very, very moving. She said, then I felt, you know, like I needed to ask her her name again. So I asked her, and then she didn't answer. I asked her a second time, and she bowed and smiled as before, but she remained silent. Then once more for a third time, clasping my hands and confusing, Confessing myself unworthy of asking her, I made my again my, my request again. And then it says, when Bernadette reached this point in her story, she was overcome by emotion. She continued as follows, quote, The lady, uh, at my third request, our lady's face became very serious, and she seemed to bow down in an attitude of humility. Then she joined her hands and raised them to her breast, she looked up to heaven, and slowly opening her hands and leaning forward toward me, she said to me in a voice vibrating with emotion, quote, I am the Immaculate Conception. Wow. Just think about that. So she waited until the Feast of the Annunciation. It's very, it's very appropriate. I mean, that's when sure. Angel Gabriel announced to her that she was, you know, right. to be the Mother of God, and she was full of grace, meaning that's where we kind of get the dogma, the Immaculate Conception. The angel said, you are full of grace, meaning she never had original sin. So, um, you know, for Bernadette, she goes back and tells the parish priest. <laughs> matter of fact, she kept repeating those words because she had no idea what they meant. She didn't have any... Tony, oh, I think we lost Tony there. Uh but uh, yeah, yes, this is a, a, a truly beautiful book. It's Lourdes, Healing and Rebirth from uh, Ignatius Press. You can go to Ignatius.com to get it um, uh, from uh, uh, one of those people who helped to put it together. In these days of anxiety, Lourdes has not let us down. Bernadette, like her fellow St. Therese of, Therese of Lozo, does in fact spend her heaven doing good on earth. This very beautiful book wants to continue the adventure. To visit Lourdes through what has been said or written since the time of the apparitions, augmented by magnificent photos by a photographer in love with the place, Sophie DeLay. And boy, the, the, the photos will knock your socks off. When you read it and contemplate the images, I invite you to hold this book in your hands as if it were a little piece of that land visited by heaven. From page to page, I invite you to let yourself be surprised, to whisper a Hail Mary, to whisper, to whisper, I invite you to, to let yourself be surprised, to whisper a Hail Mary, to let yourself be moved, or to perceive your heart beating more joyously. Perhaps you will feel the stirrings of a new desire to go there, to see, and all the rest will be grace. Uh, Tony is back with us. Tony, uh, thanks for, for your efforts in this, and I, I'm, it's just, it's, we get we get a lot of books. Uh, we get a lot of books from you, and we love we love all of them. This one uh, just really touched my heart. Yeah, I'm sorry I got cut off there. I don't know where I where I got cut off at. But I was telling about her revealing herself to the conception. Was that picked up? Yes, yes, that was right. Right, <laughs> that's right. Right when it left, but but you're saying you were saying that Bernadette didn't even know what it meant. Didn't know what it meant, and so when she went back and told the parish priest what, what the name of this woman, I am the Immaculate. Of course, the priest was completely uh, 
overwhelmed, uh, asking her if she knew what it meant. Of course, she said no, and then he knew she was telling the truth, and he knew it was Our Lady. So then he he agreed to go move forward with, uh, you know, helping get this all approved and so forth. But just back to my, uh, by the way, so this was four years after the Church proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in mm-hmm. 1854. So she appeared in 1858 to Bernadette. So basically, it was like she was confirming the Church on proclaiming that dogma. I just think that is very cool as well. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's like why would why would Bernadette come in and and say the Immaculate Conception instead of just coming up with a name, you know, if she was if she was lying? Exactly. Well, not yeah, not only that, but the Immaculate Conception. I, know, I, I mean, know. that's just a stunning phrase, you yeah. know, a stunning description of of, of Our Lady. Uh, but I just love the the fact that she she waited uh, on the sixteenth apparition after Bernadette had requested right. frequently because the priest kept bugging her. And Our Lady would just smile. It's very sweet. Our Lady would smile and just kind of bow her head, but she would never say anything. Wow. Uh, and then on the Feast of the Annunciation, she finally said it. And I love the fact that Our Lady was, her voice was vibrating with emotion when mm-hmm. she said those mm-hmm. words. Yeah, now the whole thing is stunning. So that's Lourdes is, uh, Lourdes is endlessly inspiring and fascinating. Well, I highly recommend this book, Lourdes Healing and Rebirth. Uh, you can get it at your favorite Catholic bookstore or go to ignatius.com and uh, uh, yeah just and give give that uh, that uh, Guadalupe phone number there will you Tony <laughs> yeah so it's uh, actually yeah, 800-651-1531 actually you're our lady of Guadalupe period we took that number so 800-651-1531 is the number and by the way I just want to call people's attention we, we do publish the book the song of Bernadette the famous one we were talking about and also, um, there are a couple of great films on Bernadette that we license. One's shown every day at Lourdes. It's called Bernadette, which is a movie made by a famous French uh, filmmaker, Jean Delanois, who wanted to tell the story of Bernadette historically as it exactly happened. He, he knew about the song of Bernadette, but a lot of that is uh, kind of Hollywoodized. It's beautiful, right. but it's you know, it's, it's you know, they put in their own kind of made-up stuff. So the film Bernadette, starring the American actress Sidney Penny, we've licensed that. That's available. That's the one they show at Lourdes every day in the theater. And then the sequel to that, which he made, is called The Passion of Bernadette. And that's the the rest of the story about Bernadette after she went into the convent. And both of them are starring Sidney Penny. So those are available. And the book, The Song of Bernadette, as well, we sell. Very good. Tony, always a joy to talk to you. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks for everything you do. And uh, God bless you and your family. And keep them all honest over there in the Napa Valley, okay? <laughs> All right, thanks for all the good work you do, and thanks to your producer, the great Gabe Sorensen. Yes, uh, the angel Gabriel. <laughs> He's right, right here in studio with us. <laughs> all right. <laughs> thanks, Tony. God bless. God bless that's you guys. Uh, th- that's uh, Tony Ryan, the uh, sales and marketing director for uh, Ignatius Press. That's going to do it for us for today. Thanks for listening. God bless everyone. We'll talk with you again soon. To the cross I look to the cross I cling Of its suffering I do drink Of its work I do sing On it must save you Both bruised and crushed Showing that God is love
reconciled. 